0: Hello and welcome to the Adventure Options Podcast. You want adventures and you have options. In this episode, I interview Brian Mullis, who is currently the director of Guyana Tourism Authority. Brian tells us all about working his way up the adventure tourism ladder from line cook to director. Stick around so you can learn how you can earn your travel better certificate. As always, this podcast is sponsored by Adventure Writers, copywriting for the travel industry. There are 4.6 billion web pages out there. Make sure yours stands out. Go to adventurewriters.agency for help. That's adventure w r i t e r s.agency. Now for the show. Brian, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me today, Shan. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I'm excited to interview you. I actually learned about you from Jake Hoppert. And frankly, anyone that Jake sends my way, I just know i 'm going to have a good time interviewing, so you must be quite the fascinating person
1: well, I guess that will be to be determined, but yeah I've known Jake for for many years, and having a referral from him uh, is something that I appreciate a, a great deal. so thanks again for having me here today.
0: yeah, so I know that different articles and people who have interviewed you have called you an international leader in sustainable travel. But everybody gets their start somewhere. So where would you say your start into the adventure travel world began?
1: Well, to go way back, I think it's just that love for adventure. I grew up in a a very rural part of of North Alabama and the lower Appalachian Mountains and had a lot of freedom. So got into all kinds of things in the outdoors. And uh that led me to working in the national parks and in college and and though i was going to go into another field of study for my my graduate work i I did some research and learned i could get a a master's in recreation management and that sounded like a lot more fun than industrial organizational psychology so that's when i fundamentally made the, the shift but i like to joke that I started off as a, a dishwasher in Yellowstone the year after the fires in 89, and uh, I guess I was a good dishwasher because I got elevated up to a line cook pretty quickly and have held positions in all different areas of travel insurance since that time.
0: And you did this while you were going to college, so was, was it like a summer job? Because you did not go to school in Idaho, Montana, or Wyoming, right?
1: No, I actually went to Auburn University in Southern Alabama. Uh, so started my park career there in the summers um, in between uh, our various semesters.
0: And you got your bachelor's degree in psychology.
1: Yeah, psychology and, and business.
0: I imagine that actually helps you in your career, that background in into the way that people think and the reasons for why they act as far as helping you help people want to do sustainable tourism?
1: It actually has been extremely valuable at this point in my career. I've worked in the private sector for quite some time, uh, led a nonprofit for many years, and now I'm a public servant working for the government of Guyana. So really each each of those different sectors has its own language, has its own ways of, of operating both formally and informally, and I think understanding people and motivations and aims, I think certainly makes a a significant difference in trying to achieve shared desired outcomes, particularly when you're involved in scenarios that involve complex collaboration.
0: Definitely. So what was the next step after working at Yellowstone? Where do you go from there?
1: Well, I, I ended up getting my graduate degree in, in recreation management from Springfield College and after that was, was looking fairly quickly how to break the, the glass ceiling and knowing that um, to, to, to get where I wanted to go that I needed to find myself in an owner operator role. At the same time, I was still paying off my undergraduate work, let alone my, my graduate work. So uh, I, I can't say that I was well resourced, but I, I did find an opportunity to work for a gentleman um, based in Maine um, at the New England Outdoor Center to start some, some new programs or lines of business for him. And at the end of, of the first year, he had asked me to run profit and loss statements for each of them, and, and they all generated some profit. So I realized I had a bit of a knack for for uh, entrepreneurship and had asked him if I could buy into the business. And you know, fortunately, he was really open to it. Unfortunately, uh, the price tag was well outside of my, my means. So at that point, I, I really made a, a concentrated effort to look for an opportunity to be able to buy into an existing business and um uh, on a wing and a prayer and a shoestring um, my grandmother my mother and my father who are not together and have not been for many years all signed co-signed i should say on a a loan to help me purchase a pre-existing business that i had an opportunity to be the operations manager for 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 a year so i knew what i was getting into and um, that's what ultimately led me into the international adventure travel arena
0: what a great family! That's that takes some tricky finagling to work the relationships between family and business inve- investor all in the same the same line.
1: Yeah, asking three family members to take a, a risk on you, particularly um, when the bank that we were going through was in Alabama, and being familiar with international tour operations, adventure travel, it's just not a family work of the lines of business that they're accustomed to. So it was a bit of stretch on all sides there.
0: Now, was this the World Outdoors? Is Correct. that what company it was? Yes. Tell me kind of what the World Outdoors did or does, what their their goal is or what their tours are like.
1: Well, we uh, entered a space that was predominantly focused on multi-day soft adventure Um, with a very localized feel. So staying in locally owned hotels, bed and breakfasts, historical inns, um, things of that nature, Uh, working with local guides and uh, providing our, our guests with an opportunity to explore their comfort zones, if not fully step outside of them, because we found that that's when people really had those aha moments to engage in self-discovery and learnings of, of, of themselves and, and the world outside, ultimately. So um, uh, in the comfort of a group setting where you know, with a couple guides we could orchestrate a variety of different experiences for varying ability levels on the, the same trip, typically in a five to 14 day format Um, So the whole aim was to offer extraordinary trips um, that were authentic in in nature before those terms were well overused in in our sector. And what we did, I think, that set us apart is we we adopted all the tenets of of ecotourism because we just felt like that's the way that we should run a business. There should be a local benefit. There should be a minimal environmental impact here. And, And that ultimately, if our travelers know that they're having positive impact on the places they visit while having a great trip, optimally the trip of a lifetime. If they did afford themselves to explore their comfort zones, then we would create raving fans. And ultimately I think that that's the model for any tour operating business where you're dependent on repeat and referral-based clientele as optimally the majority of your visitors on an annual basis just to, to be viable and continue to expand in other areas that are attractive to, to them. Um, since that time, uh, the, the business was acquired by, by Backroads, which is actually one of the companies that, um, in, in my early days at the World Outdoors, I, I aspired to benchmark them because I think they were, were the leader and maybe still are in, in that particular niche of active travel.
0: Were you calling it ecotourism back then? Like, did you even know what that was?
1: Yeah, that term, fortunately, had been around for, for quite some time and, and being somewhat of an environmentalist myself, once I learned about the tenets and, and how to apply them, um, it, it, again, it just made sense for our, our business model because there are so many different players in the adventure travel space. So to be able to talk about um, those local Experiences and share those stories that stem from the destinations that we served, and those unique individuals that that helped to deliver those experiences. I think made a, a key point of uniqueness in a otherwise a very saturated market at this in this day and age.
0: Yes. Do you still have a role with the world outdoors, or are you completely cut off from them now?
1: Uh, you know, I, I I finished up with them in two thousand and three, I got a little bit of a consulting gig with uh, the buyer and, um, you know, for me it was the perfect uh, transition out of the, the business because I had, once I was ready to sell and, and move on to, to the, the next um, area that I was extremely passionate about, I had a lot of people that wanted to just buy the mailing list. And here I was gauging my success on, on one of my primary metrics was. Uh, centered around the customer comes second philosophy, that if you put your people first, then your customers come first, and everybody wins, and um, that metric was attracting and retaining highly qualified personnel that were very passionate about the type of travel that, that we offered, and the last thing in the world I could imagine was selling out the business out from under them and not carrying on the mission that we together had co-created, so it was quite unique when one day a gentleman walks in my door and and mentions that he's interested in moving out of the technology sector and was fascinated by the work that we were doing and wanted some advice on how he would go about starting uh, a business. And ultimately, as alluded, he ended up becoming the the buyer and and, and led the, the company for a number of years. I think he sold it as well before ultimately Tom Hale at Backroads bought it uh, just last year I think.
0: Oh nice. Now was this all around the time that you started the Sustainable Travel International?
1: Yeah that was in, in 2002 so sold the business to a gentleman by the name of Bill Mariner in August of 2002 and then founded Sustainable Travel International with support from one of my former employees at the World Outdoors, Peter Cranenbuehl, and um, led that business for the better part of of 14 years.
0: What was the initial goal or what was the initial motivation to start that?
1: Our thought was that uh, the tenets of ecotourism should apply to the travel and tourism industry at, at large. At the time, the term sustainable tourism, perhaps it had been coined, but it certainly wasn't in broad use by any stretch of the imagination. So our, our, our mission um, was more or less, can we mainstream the concept of sustainability in the travel and tourism industry from airlines and cruise lines to large multinational tour operators and hotel chains. And, Fortunately, the answer was yes, absolutely. You know, here we are in 2018 and sustainable tourism has been adopted by all the leading multinational corporations uh, around the world.
0: Were you seeing a negative impact of tourism that kind of motivated you to do that?
1: I think we were a little bit ahead of our our time. You know, what was it uh, last year when word over tourism was first? maybe coined, or at least in in regular use, making headlines around the world. That phenomenon hadn't occurred yet, but we were already seeing the impacts of over-tourism in popular parks like Yellowstone that that deal with visitor management issues. So we knew that there was an issue there, but um, more or less what we set out to do was help businesses implement best practices in sustainable tourism, taking the lessons learned from the world outdoors, starting with small, medium, and micro-sized enterprises. That then led us, by a natural matter of course, to working with the multinational corporations, because all of a sudden, instead of working with over 100 small businesses, we could work with and as an example, one single multinational corporation that had hundreds of businesses under subcontract as part of its value chain. So we found that we could have a, a greater multiplier of impact with finite resources and a nonprofit that, that made a lot of sense to evolve in that direction, which then later moved us into working with governments because there we could work with the private, public, and civil sector in the destination and, and again, affect the entire tourism value chain, but not just within a singular business, within a a country or protected area or community.
0: And I feel like you hit both ends of the rope because, like you said, you help the larger companies or even the mid-sized small companies on how they impact, but you also have an initiative for the individual traveler. I think it's called the Travel Better certificate?
1: Yes, that was actually. I'm proud of that program because it was the last program that I had an opportunity to to launch before uh, completing a succession in leadership at Sustainable Travel International. And it was actively supported by Bruce Puntip at G Adventures and Jamie Sweeting, who leads up Planetara, who, you know, both leaders in sustainability and and adventure travel in in their own right, and our thought was, well, businesses are doing a lot, more destinations are getting on board with sustainable destination management, but if we're missing out on reaching the travelers in a more fundamental, scaled-up fashion, then we're missing one of the three parts of of the the stool that is gonna help our, our industry endure and stand the test of of time in terms of living up to its promise to benefit people in in places where where tourism is well managed and and orchestrated. So as with all of Sustainable Travel International's programs, we design programs to be scaled. So how can we create a tool that there's a market demand for it, so a very business-centric approach that then could be implemented by any business. They could white label it. And, and make it their, their, their own.
0: So why don't you explain to our listeners what the certificate or club program is for the traveler, the Travel Better certificate?
1: Well, it, it begins with uh, an online module where you essentially go through uh, a self-paced process as if you were visiting a destination and the various things that you would do prior to visiting the destination when you're there on your trip and having a great time, and then when you get home, so it walks you through those things, and then as you work through the program, it, it poses a number of scenarios. What would you do in this case or that case so that you can learn and, um, in, in multiple areas of the module, seek out additional information with quick links to um, various uh, information sources, and then when you get through, you are led through a series of, of questions Um, It's a pass-fail test, but you can take it as many times as you like, and then you receive a certificate from Sustainable Travel International upon successful completion. And as an incentive to get people through the program, you then are entitled to a portfolio of of benefits that are offered from travel and tourism companies uh, around the the world that are only accessible to those uh, travel better uh, club members and interestingly enough it's I've been seeing more and more the use of the hashtag travel better in in social media and while those people themselves might not have completed the course i think the concept stands alone in and of itself that if i think about how i can travel better what does that mean to me as an individual traveler? And ultimately that's what we were trying to instill is people just giving more thought about to their travels and and knowing that or learning because most people don't have that awareness that their travels can have a positive impact on people and places, but it takes a little bit more planning, a little bit more thought, but ultimately the rewards that, that, stem from travel are are much richer and much greater for those travelers that are trying to have a positive impact.
0: Can I tell you what I really love about that? (laughs) Of course I can, right? It's my podcast. Of course I can. I really love that it empowers the traveler. I think that often in sustainable travel, and, and I'm guilty of this as well, that we think, what can the corporation do What can the uh, tour managers do? What can the leaders do? And I think by empowering the traveler, then the market is going to respond to that. I, I think that in any industry, once the customer has an agenda or a value that they're not willing to let go of, the market responds. So I love that you thought of, like I said, the other end of the rope and how do we get the fire burning on this end and not just on the uh, leader or industry. end? how do we get it burning on the, the end user end or the customer end? So I just really love empowering people to make sustainable tourism an individual practice and not just relying on the companies that you, that you work with to do it.
1: Well, Shane, I appreciate that feedback, and that's ultimately what it's all about. I think for sustainable destination management, sustainable development through tourism, however you want to characterize it, we all have a a role to play. And, And when it's successful, it's because travelers, the travel trade, governments, NGOs, donors, aid agencies are all coming together to achieve shared aims like um, alleviating poverty um, fostering peace and prosperity um, mitigating negative impacts and protecting biodiversity uh, most among a host of other other benefits it's, it's been really fascinating to to come here to, to Guyana in my new role and actually see that here's a destination that sees the cultural an- angle of it is that, It's the first destination I've ever worked in that mentioned that languages are being lost in our indigenous communities. When travelers are are demanding or wanting to go to visit those places in a respectful, mindful fashion to learn about those cultures, then the young people are really receptive to that and, and, and develop that pride in cultural heritage that then ultimately leads to its preservation and the handing down of elders of knowledge to to those younger people to then pass on to, to future generations. So when, you know, what was it, last year in September of 2017, all the members of the United Nations World Tourism Organization signed on to, I think it's called the Chengdu Declaration, that travel and tourism does and can contribute more meaningful, to, in a more meaningful manner to all 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And, and I think some of these examples that we're talking to just illustrate that, that very fact and how we each can contribute in our own unique way, while also having a great time.
0: That is a perfect segue to Guyana. Let's talk about Guyana. You are the director of Guyana Tourism. How did you get involved in that? Why Guyana? Did they approach you? Did you approach them? How did that all start?
1: Well, it started, I think, when completing my succession at Sustainable Travel International. I think there's a certain time as a founder of any business where it's optimal for the health of the business to bring in new leadership, new vision, new life into an organization. And that I had said early on with Sustainable Travel International, I never wanted to be accused of founder's syndrome. That is, when you're just not willing to let your, your baby go and grow up into adulthood. So... Um, when initiating that succession, I started thinking about, well, gosh, I've had two dream jobs in a row. What would be the third and, uh, looked into a few things. I've taught at a university level and I wanted to look in what would it, you know, what would it look like to, to do that full time. Also um, got actively involved in conservation tourism, uh, with, uh, a group called Conservation Capital out of the UK in Nairobi, Kenya. And at the same time was um, uh, sending out CVs related to National Tourism Board lead roles. Knowing it was kind of a shot in the dark because it's very rare for an expatriate to fill a role in leading a National Tourism Board for another country. So I just felt like, well, I'm going to pursue the dream job trifecta. It is a shot in the dark, but if you, if you don't try, you never are going to succeed. So um, being a somewhat of a hard-headed entrepreneur who's uh, infinitely patient and, and, and perseveres uh, at all times, is, which I think speaks to why I've been involved in sustainability so long, it's, it's a long game in and of itself. Um, I, I saw the listing for Guyana and Sustainable Travel International had led a project in the northern Rupinuni, uh several years prior, and I felt like, wow, this destination looks like a perfect fit for me. They're pursuing a green state agenda. They're talking a lot about sustainable tourism. The application required that you submit your, your vision, and I got called into an interview and had a, a long-distance Skype interview with a hiring committee, and they were all smiles and nodding their heads as I'm answering a series of, of questions to come to find that um, I was the only candidate that got uh, uni- uh, uh, approval across the, the board for all the individuals on the hiring committee unanimously to uh, bring me into that, that director role. So. The next step was perhaps the, the biggest, and that was to convince my family that this might be a, a good move for us. Um, I've always been primarily motivated by impact in, in, in life as part of my career, and, and uh, this certainly is exemplary of the potential to, to do so. So in many respects, I was sold on the job, but having had a couple great jobs in a row, I wanted to put my wife first because she's an entrepreneur too and give her the space to take her business to the next level, and if this was gonna interrupt that, that flow, then it was completely off the table. At the same time, um, my kids are from Ethiopia, so North America was their second continent. Thinking about moving to South America is kind of a big to-do, so I wanted to get see if they would be on board for what you know could become the family adventure of a, a lifetime, and they were sold pretty easily, and my wife and I came down to uh, do a little reconnaissance and got to meet uh, a lot of great people, got to see some of the country, and um, discovered that it would be uh, a really great fit for for us as, as a family. And flash forward over six months here and i happy to report that things are going extremely well. Um, the, the main uh, indicator for me is that people in travel and tourism are saying that good things are happening now. Positive momentum, momentum is is occurring, and back to the point made earlier, it's been all about alignment, aligning with our sister governmental agencies like the Ministry of Indigenous Peoples Affairs and Protected Areas Commission, aligning and working with the tourism private sector, informing travelers about what they can do to make a difference in their visit to to Guyana, and all that adds up to that multiplier effect that we we call collective impact and. Uh, I think uh, uh, we're seeing sea change here in, in Guyana on multiple fronts, not the least of which is travel and tourism.
0: I love that you involved your family and that you recognized that this was going to impact their lives for better or worse and involve them in that decision. That's really cool. I have to admit, when I knew I was going to interview you and I saw that you were the director of Guyana Tourism, I thought, I don't know anything about Guyana, which is so sad because I have actually lived in South America twice. I lived, oh, okay. in, I lived in Ecuador, and then I lived in Uruguay.
1: Okay, I was going to ask.
0: But never in the north, northeast section. And so I had to look up some things, and I actually was pleasantly surprised. So what do you think some of the biggest misconceptions you come across are that people think of when they think of Guyana
1: well first most people have never heard of of Guyana and if we you know think to the fact that last time i looked around 25 percent of americans had passports it's it's no surprise that that this country would fall under the radar with all the other countries in the world um
0: it's just a little guy it's only the size of about oregon right
1: yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, the other misconception, I think, is that we're, we're in Africa. I think Ghana is the country that people get confused. Ghana, Guyana, it sounds kind of similar. But then when people learn that we're the only English-speaking country in South America, we're known as the land of the giants, which I think sparks people's imagination of what on earth does this mean, you know, with all the giant otter and arapaima and all these different species that many people also have not heard of. And then to learn about our, our indigenous peoples and how strong that, that culture and heritage is here in, in country and the fact that people can have meaningful interactions with our indigenous peoples, learn about their lives and speak to them in their native tongue without an interpreter. We've been joking that we're trying to redefine the five star experience because while not luxury, We have to think, what does luxury mean in this day and age? We have 80% of our forests our virgin rainforest. You can literally travel up to a day or more and not see any sign of other people. You can go to Kaichur National Park, the largest single drop waterfall in, in the world, or one of, and there's no railing. There's no large hotel or development. You're probably just gonna be there with 10 people max having that experience completely to yourself and when you contrast that with Victoria Falls or Niagara it really does start to put in into perspective that if if authenticity is the new currency in in travel and tourism and and I, I, I believe there's some truth to that because once authenticity is lost it's pretty hard to get back we have that in abundance and we can provide those experiences relatively easy because it's a very raw adventure experience. because Desti- Destination Guyan is not over overdeveloped. Whereas there is a phenomenon of over-tourism, there's also that phenomenon of, of under-tourism. We have roughly 275,000 visitors per year. Um, I just mostly recently moved from the Columbia River Gorges National Scenic Area, and I think we have more visitors in, in the small community of White Sam in Washington. where where I come from than than we have here on an annual basis. And most of those people aren't currently going into the interior. So you really do have a chance to be, to feel like a a pioneer or at least an, an intrepid traveler when you come here.
0: And it's so beautiful. I'm going to put the link in the show notes to the website, but when I was, if nothing else, everybody who's listening, go and look at the website and just check out the pictures. Like you said, that waterfall is on there. Um, and different cultural things are on the pictures if you scan through them, but it's just beautiful, and it does seem like almost like a, a virgin paradise, just someplace that hasn't been overtaken or over-tweeted or over, I don't know what you call it on Instagram, grammed. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not good at Instagram yet, so I don't know, but it—it it sure. just <laughs> it does look just, Wonderful, and and dang you, Brian! Another item on my bucket list. I just don't think there's enough years in my life (laughs) to do all my bucket list items, and you've added one more. It's just it's a beautiful country, and it did shock me that they speak English uh, because I think you know you think South America, you automatically think Spanish or or Portuguese, but it it was fascinating that yeah, especially for travelers who may you know, have some trepidation about going to a foreign country because of the language barriers. It seems like a really good, happy medium to go there and still experience a foreign country and a foreign culture and still be able to communicate.
1: Yeah, I think there's a little bit of cultural shock when you travel anywhere in the world that's different from what you're accustomed to, whether it's acknowledged as such or or, or not. And when language isn't a, a barrier, To your point, it does make it a lot, lot easier and accessible to to people to, to get around.
0: Perfect. Well, Brian, it has been fascinating talking to you just about your career and your involvement. You can tell how passionate you are about sustainable travel and Guyana. I like to end these interviews asking two questions. And one of them is, where's your favorite place to go, travel or adventure? Um, And if you want to specify even a place in Guyana that's your favorite, that's totally fine too. And then two, what piece of advice would you give today's adventure traveler? What little nugget could they walk away from this interview to improve their experience or improve the experience of the places they're going to?
1: Those are great questions. As you know, the the first one is one of the hardest for any travel and tourism professional to answer and how I, have historically answered it as by continent because that's the easiest way for me to do so I won't put your audience through that so I'll answer it I think a little bit more simply is that um, you know, with family adventure theme and in, in, in mind um, one of two would be the Columbia River Gorge National Scenic Area because it is an adventure mecca and the number the volume of and diversity of types of uh, family adventures that we could have just outside of our back door from our home is truly extraordinary always discovering new things that we could do or a different way we could approach the landscape by a wind water snow whitewater trail or, or otherwise um and then uh, i'd be remiss if i didn't mention guyana it's been really a great deal of fun to introduce the family to international adventure travel just in our backyard and with all the wonderful hosts that we have offering uh, different tours and experiences here in country it's 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 making new friends in, in the process and I think that speaks to your second question is that the adventure travel arena is is really like like family um, and that's where I first learned that concept and it just got reinforced over the years and recognizing though travel and tourism is the largest service sector in the world that the community of practitioners and professionals in the industry is pretty small. We, we all know a lot of each other. I think there's only a few degrees of separation usually. And, and that's why I would encourage your audience to speak to your travel and tourism boards that might not necessarily be your first, knee-jerk reaction on where to go for travel and tourism advice, but it's actually why we exist. We are an unbiased source of in-depth information on whatever in the world you might want to know about traveling in a certain destination, and if the tourism board doesn't know, they know who to ask, and if you you know you ask the same questions to uh, private sector company it's really in their best interest to gear them towards something that they might might offer or a friend might offer and that's natural of course certainly supportive of, of that but again for that unbiased advice go to your chosen boards we're here to serve you
0: that is a perfect piece of advice and one that we have not heard on the podcast yet so thank you very much brian thanks for your time and your expertise and i wish you the best in guyana
1: thank you much shana Great show and happy to be a part of it. Until next time, all the very best to you.
0: Shana here. Brian made a really good point about the tourism boards. They are a wealth of knowledge and hey, it's a renewable resource. Remember to visit adventurewriters.agency to join my mailing list and get updates when a new podcast episode airs. Until next time, see ya.